narrative of various journeys in Balochistan, Afghanistan and the Punjab, including a residence in those countries from 1826 to 1838, by Charles Masson, in three volumes. Volume 1 Preface It is hoped that the melancholy interest conferred by events upon the countries bordering on the Indus may justify the publication of these volumes. Should the information afforded increase the stock of knowledge already possessed, my labours may prove neither ill-timed nor unprofitable. Accounts of several of the journeys performed prior to 1831, differing in no essential manner from those now given, found their way to the government offices both in India and England. In course of the work, I have expressed regret that this should have been the case but only under apprehensions that they may have been made to subserve the interested schemes of artful and designing men, a purpose for which most certainly they were never written. The late Sir Alexander Burns, in a letter of 9th March 1836, wrote to me, For some years past I have often crossed your path, and I have never done so without finding the impressions which I had imbibed regarding your talents, your honour and your zeal, strengthened by the meeting. I quote this passage merely to show that while Sir Alexander could privately acknowledge that he had often crossed my path, he found it inconvenient as regarding his pretensions publicly to avow so much. And I am in possession of a letter from England informing me that my papers were considered valuable at the India House, as corroborating the accuracy of Captain Burns' statements. It will be seen that I was guiltless of the wild projects, which would seem from the first to have been possessed the mind of that unfortunate officer, and which he was mainly instrumental in forcing the government to attempt. However notoriously the results have been disastrous to it, and fatal to himself. In the concluding chapters of the third volume, I have slightly noticed the commercial mission of Captain Burns in the years 1837 and 38. I have perhaps said enough to convey an idea of it. It would have been painful to have said more. The late Dr. Lord was commissioned by Lord Auckland to write a history of it. To have glossed over so flagrant a failure probably exceeded his ability, and the task undertaken with temerity was abandoned in despair. I have also alluded to the honour done me by Sir John Hobhouse in enrolling me amongst the defenders of Lord Auckland's policy. In declining the honour, I trust I have, although briefly, still sufficiently, shown that I am not entitled to the honour. I wrote the few remarks I made on the subject with the speech of Sir John as it appeared in the Times before me. I have now published the speech, which from the very circumstance of its being published, I presume the ex-minister to be proud of. In the Times I am quoted as having written, In recent efforts of Shah Shuja, there is little doubt, but that if a single British officer had gone with him as a mere reporter of his proceedings to the Governor-General, his simple appearance would have sufficed for the Shah's re-establishment on the throne of Kabul. 
There is no doubt that these observations were made by me in 1835 or 1836 on some occasion, and that they could not have been imagined by the Times reporter. Therefore, it may be supposed that they were quoted by Sir John Hobhouse, although they are omitted in the published version of his speech. It was the general opinion in Kabul that if a single British officer had accompanied the Shah in 1834, that he would have been successful. And I question whether if Sir Alexander Burns had been entrusted with the Shah's restoration, he would have been accompanied with more than a regiment or two, which he considered necessary. But when Mr. Secretary McNaughton became inspired by the desire to acquire renown and luxuriate in Kabul, the extensive armament was decided upon, which was utterly unnecessary and which has conduced to the subsequent mischief as much as the incapacity of those directing it. For in the hands of abler men it might have also proved a fatal experiment. I may here controvert the opinion many entertain that Shah Shuja was unpopular with the Afghans. His career proves that he was not. Repeatedly, with scanty funds and resources, he has been able to collect thousands around him, and although from his irresolution generally unsuccessful, he never lost this power until the British destroyed it for him. In the misfortunes that remembrance of which still excites our horror, there was no one more to be pitied than the Shah, for no man could be placed in a more critical or compromised situation. Before leaving Ferozpur, he remarked, he was conscious that he should acquire a badnam, a bad name, forever, but that he should again see Kabul. There was no reason that the exiled prince should have lost his reputation. A single British officer or even a regiment or two might not have injured it. The envoy and minister and his host ruined it. The Afghans had no objections to the match. They disliked the manner of the wooing. Even after the entry of the Shah into Kabul, had the army retired agreeably to the Shimla proclamation, he might still have reigned there. But this did not consist with the views of the government from that time revealed. It was found requisite to remain in order to keep him on the throne. Had he dared, he would have deprecated such aid. Now misfortune naturally excites compassion. And this has been shown to Dost Muhammad Khan, who strangely enough in opposition to the Shah has been supposed to have been popular. Yet he was not. Abandoned by his army at Arghandi, he became, without a struggle, a fugitive. When it was found that the British troops did not retire, the dissatisfaction as the consequence spread amongst the people of his country. He sought to profit by it and presented himself at Bamiyan. For what? To be repulsed and then deserted by his allies. Again, he showed himself in the Kohistan, but only to surrender. In Sir John Hobhouse's published speech, my, my opinions are cited as brought forward by Sir Claude Wade. I believe it would be impossible for the latter individual to act in a straightforward manner. He might otherwise have stated that such opinions were given in 1835 or 1836 and might not be applicable to the state of things as they were in 1838. 
However, Sir John Hubhouse was in possession of my own recommendation written in reply to Mr. Secretary McNaughton that Shah Shuja should be restored. But he forbore to notice it because perhaps there was no allusion to the designs of Persia and the Russians therein and that the restoration was urged for the purpose of sparing expense and loss of life, not of occasioning both the one and the other. In my remarks on the mission of Captain Burns, I have endeavoured to show that the primary cause of its failure was the neglect of the Peshawar question. Now, I never had but one opinion on the question. In Mr. Bailey's speech of the 23rd of June, I was surprised to observe quoted a dispatch from Captain Burns to Mr. McNaughton, written only the day before the mission left Kabul, and which I introduce here, because while aware of the interview alluded to, I never knew what passed at it. More than that, Captain Burns himself told me he had rejected every proposal made to him. It also amply proves the correctness of my views, and establishes, I should think, pretty clearly both how easily affairs in Kabul might have been arranged and how grossly Captain Burns suffered himself to be imposed upon from the very first. While it explains the meaning of all the various stratagems put into play to rouse the mind of Sikandar Burns. On the 25th, I received another visit from Sardar Meher Dil Khan, was accompanied by the Nawab Jabbar Khan, Mirza Sami Khan, and the Naibs of Kandahar and Kabul. The deputation, a formal one, from both branches of the family. The Sardar now informed me that the Amir had agreed to dismiss Captain Vikovich, to hold no further communication with other powers, and to write to the Shah of Persia that he had done with His Majesty forever. The Sardars of Kandahar, on their part, agreed to address the Shah, recall Aladad, the agent who had accompanied Kambar Ali, and to place themselves along with their brother, the Amir, entirely under the protection of the British government, in return for which they claimed at its hands two things. First, a direct promise of its good offices to establish peace at Peshawar, and an amelioration in the condition of Sultan Muhammad Khan, and second, a promise equally direct to afford them protection from Persia in whatever way the British judged it best for their interests. It being clearly understood that Kandahar was not to be allowed to suffer injury. I can easily imagine that Captain Burns would conceal from me on many accounts the proposals made at this interview. For assuredly, had I been aware of them, and that even at the last hour the chiefs had returned to their senses, I might have been spared the disagreeable task of recommending the deposition. Under the impression that they obstinately declined any arrangement, the Baragzai chiefs have suffered more from the errors of Captain Burns as much as from their own. What Captain Burns gained, we all know. It is to be hoped that the good sense of the British nation will never again permit such expeditions as the one beyond the Indus, to be concerted with levity, and to be conducted with recklessness, and that the experience acquired from the disasters may be made 
beneficial in placing the control of Indian affairs in very different hands from those who have so willfully abused the power confided to them, and whose rashness and folly in plunging the country into wars, ruinous to its reputation, may yet be punished. The security and prosperity of the Indian possessions are too intimately connected with those of Great Britain. To permit that a minister or ministers of the crown or a governor-general shall again endanger them or be permitted the power of making aggressive wars on trivial or imaginary pretenses, and such wars without the consent of the Houses of Parliament, the sanction of the Privy Council, and for aught we know, without the knowledge of the sovereign of the realm. If such irregularities pass unnoticed, the nation will deserve the misfortunes she may entail upon herself, and will cease to be free. Now, there is much general information on Afghanistan and its inhabitants, which I could not introduce into the present work, although I may at a future time strive to repair this deficiency, lamenting to a friend that my contracted space in these books obliged me to omit much that I should have been pleased to have noticed. He said, I hope you have uh, told us who the Afghans are. I had not done so, yet the question was so pertinent that I avail myself of the preface to answer it somewhat imperfectly. Now the term Afghan acknowledged by a multitude of tribes speaking the same dialect, the Pashto or Afghani, has no known signification and it is manifestly borne by many people of a very different origin. There are however several marked divisions such as the Duranis, the Gilgis, the Jajis and Turis, the Yusufzai tribes, the Khaibaris, the Viziris, with the tribes of the Suleiman range, etc. Among these races, it is difficult to tell to whom the appellation of Afghan originally belonged. As regards their origin, we may have recourse to the various traditions preserved by themselves, or by the historians who have mentioned them, as well as to other circumstances. The Duranis are known both in India and Persia as the Abdali, or Afdali, a, pl a plural term. And when we find that the white huns of ancient history, the Euthalites of classical authors, were named Heptals by Armenian historians, we may infer that the Abdali or modern Duranis are no other than the descendants of that powerful people. The Siyapush Kafirs remember that their ancestors were driven into their hills from the plains by the Odals, a term that still apply to the inhabitants of the low countries. The Gilgis are undoubtedly a Turki, Turkic tribe, named as Kalji or Kalaji by Sharif ad-Din and other Eastern authors. Ferishta notes a tradition that the Afghans were descendants of the Copts of the Pharaoh's army. It is singular that the Jajis are called in the histories of Temur, Kapt Jaji, seeming to intimate that to them referred the tradition. It is equally certain that they have precisely the same cast of countenance as the Copt inhabitants of Cairo. Another tradition describes the Afghans as descendants of Jews, who accompanied the army of Walid, the general of the Caliphs. This would apply possibly to the Khyber tribes who reside in a locality to which they have given the name of a stronghold or position in Arabia, and who wear locks of hair in a certain manner common to Oriental Jews so that one of the latter on seeing them unhesitatingly pronounces them to be one of his stock. 
Amongst the Yusufzai tribes, there are many who may be affirmed almost with certainty to be akin to the Rajput tribes of India, and like them therefore descended from the Getik, invaders of this part of the world, the subverters of the Greek Bactrian monarchy. The Waziris and other mountain tribes occupying the Suleiman range or Kaisagar are in the position asserted by very general belief to be the seat of the genuine Afghan races. True is it that they are found where the Mohammedan inroads first brought the name to notice, and their claims to be considered as the genuine Afghans are perhaps better than those of any other tribes. The introduction of the Mohammedan faith with the legends and traditions of that religion has induced all the Afghans to pretend to a descent from the Jewish patriarchs and kings, a pedigree, however, only due to their vanity, and which does not require to be too seriously examined. In another sense, they affirm that they are all Ben Israel, or children of Israel, which merely means that they are not heathens. For they affirm Christians, although not acknowledging their prophet, and Shias, whom they revile as heretics, to be equally with themselves Ben Israel, although they exclude Hindus, Chinese, and all other idolaters. Written on the 1st of August 1842 in London. End of preface. The country of Bahawalpur is bounded on the north by the Sikh provinces of Multan, Mankira, and Leah. To the south, it has the Great Desert, separating it from Jaisalmer. On the east, it touches to the north on the lands of the Sikh chief of Patiala, and more directly east on the frontiers of the Rajput principality of Bikaner. Westward, it is defined by the river Indus, which divides it from Mitan Road and a slip of territory dependent on Dera Ghazi Khan, and lower down from Harand and Dajil, provinces of the Brahui Khan of Kalat. From Gudiana, its frontier town on the Patiala side, to Chota Ahmadpur, where it connects with northern Sindh, the distance is 180 courses, or about 270 miles. And from Pulara, on the borders of Bikaner to Dera Ghazi Khan, is computed 140 courses, or above 200 miles. Its breadth importantly varies, being affected by the course of the Gara River to the north, and of the desert to the south. Its greatest breadths are on the extreme frontiers to the east and west. In the center, the pressure of the desert upon the cultivated parts allows but a comparatively small space between it and the river to the north. In this extent, there are some marked distinctions as to soil, character, and produce. The portion between Gudiana and the capital I have not yet seen, but have heard spoken of in glowing terms as to fertility and population. The accounts may be credited as its fertility would be secured by the vicinity of the Gara, and fertility would induce population. The portion of desert stretching eastward of Bahawalpur to Bikaner is of course but little productive. Yet as in many parts of it, the surface has more soil than sand, there are amongst other inhabited localities, the bazaar towns of Pulara, Murut, and Mozghar, which drive a considerable trade in grain with neighboring states. 
In this tract also the camel thrives exceedingly and finds ample sustenance in the prickly and saline plants which cover the surface. Neither are there wanting numerous herds of horned cattle, which are, however, continually shifting their position, being guided by the convenience of water. The proprietors in certain seasons of the year abandon their villages and erect temporary abodes in the spots they select, which as in Bikaner are called Kethlis. At them the traveller finds abundance of milk, butter, etc., which at such times he might not procure at the villages which they have abandoned. In remote times, rivers flowed through and fertilized this now sterile country. Their beds may in many places be still traced, and numerous vestiges of ancient towns and burned bricks and fragments of pottery strewed on the soil. The central districts of Uch, the capital Kanpur, Allahabad and Ahmedpur are distinguished by a most luxuriant cultivation of the various kinds of grain, of sugar and of the indigo plant. There cannot be a more gratifying sight than is exhibited by this part of the country before the period of harvest, the whole surface presenting an expanse of standing grain, with villages neatly constructed, of reeds, interspersed and accompanied with groups of trees, usually of the bear and date species. As soon as the crops are removed, such is the exuberance of vegetation that the ground is covered with plants and shrubs, and no one would suppose that the land now mingled with the jungle had so lately been under cultivation. Between Uch and Dera Ghazi Khan there is much jungle. It occasionally or adjacent towns to the villages, there is a vigorous cultivation of grain and of sugarcane, denoting the soil is rich and prolific. From Bahawalpur to Kanpur, the country is rich and well cultivated, although confined to the south by the sandy desert. From Kanpur to Chota Ahmedpur, the face of the country changes and becomes more adapted for grazing. Still, even in this direction, there is much tilled land near the towns and villages, although the larger proportion of the surface in the Bahawalpur territory is spread over with jungle. It must not be supposed that it is unprofitable. On the contrary, it affords pasture to immense numbers of horned cattle, cows and buffaloes, sources of wealth and comfort to the inhabitants. Bikaner and other of the Rajput states to the east mainly depend upon Bahawalpur for the supplies of consumption. There are few, if any, countries in Asia where provisions, the produce of the soil are more abundant or cheaper than in the Bahawalpur state. The domestic animals of Bahawalpur are the camel, the buffalo, the common cow, the gaddi or short-tailed sheep, the goat, etc. The camel is reared in large numbers as above stated. In the desert to the east, also in the neighborhood of the capital and of Ahmedpur, it is employed to a limited extent for agricultural purposes, being sometimes attached to the plough or made to revolve the wheels at the wells. In Bikaner, this animal is universally so employed and partially in synth. The buffalo is highly prized for its milk, which is delicious, and its meat is even preferred to that of the cow. Poultry are plentiful, but tame geese, I conclude, are rarities, having only seen them at Bakshi Khanka Masjid. Wildfowl are so abundant in the western parts near the Indus that at Fazilpur a goose may be purchased for one of the small copper pies of the country. In value, less than a half penny and two or three ducks may be procured for the same sum. They are caught by a peculiar race called Mohanis who furnish the fishermen and sailors employed on the Indus. The jungles around in, abound in game as deer and the wild hog, partridges, quail, bastards, 
pigeons, etc. are universal. There are many opulent and commercial towns in the Bahawalpur dominions. Amongst the first-class towns may be reckoned Bahawalpur, the capital, Bada or Great Ahmedpur, Uch, Kanpur, etc. Amongst the second-class, Chota or Little Ahmedpur, Allahabad, Gugujarwala, Channi Khangdi Kot, Ghazipur, Kinjer, Pulara, Murut, Mozgar, Gudiana, etc. The minor towns or large bazaar villages are very numerous and the number of agriculture villages and hamlets exceedingly great. Bahawalpur is seated about two miles from the river Gara. It formerly had walls, the indications of which only exist and are used as a walk by the inhabitants. The houses are chiefly constructed of kiln burnt bricks and are very much mixed with gardens. The whole is arranged in a loose, straggling manner, as it is on all sides encircled by groves of date and people trees. The public buildings are not very remarkable, neither are they of the Khan's palace attractive residences. There is indeed a handsome stone masjid in progress of erection. The town is the seat of many manufacturers, some of them costly and has a large trade. It is 60 courses from Multan, 120 courses from Bikaner, and 60 from Dera Ghazi Khan. Bada Ahmedpur, from having been merely a cantonment, has become an extensive and commercial town, as well as the principal residence of the Khan. It, it is seated on the verge of the desert. The Killa, or palace of the chief, is yet unfinished. The houses are generally mean, but the gardens are very good. From the favour of the Khan, it may be considered a rising town, as Bahawalpur is on the decline. Uch is perhaps the more ancient of the towns in the country. The name is borne by two towns contiguous to each other. One of them, Pir Kauch, is bestowed on Pir Nasiruddin, the spiritual advisor of the Khan. They have both good bazaars and some commerce. Seated upon the Gara, grain boats frequently descend from the two Uches to Sindh. They are principally, however, distinguished by the ruins of the former towns. Their predecessors, which are very extensive and attest to the pristine prosperity of the locality, there are 18 courses from Ahmedpur and about 40 courses from Multan. Kanpur is 40 courses from Bara Ahmedpur. It is surrounded by a country amazingly fertile and is a depot for indigo, rice and all kinds of grain. It has no pretensions to be considered a handsome town, neither judged by its traffic can it be called a large one. Some of the Hindus of this town have spacious residences, yet generally speaking the houses are very indifferent. The ancient walls have fallen down and have not been replaced. Without their ruins are many dilapidated serais and other buildings. There is no fort here, nor is it judged necessary to keep a garrison. Chota Ahmedpur is a fair-sized town with good bazaars and is surrounded with mud walls. Within them are some more recently fortified erections, but they are detached and have no connection with each other so that this seemed to have been raised in pursuance of a plan never completed, as is probably the case. Otherwise, they are well built of kiln-burnt bricks, being the frontier town towards Sin, the regiment of 350 men with six guns is stationed at Ahmedpur. Gujugarwala, Channi Khandi Goth, Ghazipur and Kinjer are all small but commercial towns principally in grain, the produce of the country. Pulara on the frontier of Bikaner has a good bazaar and is not perhaps very commercial. The fortress adjacent has been a superior building for these parts, but is now sadly in decay. 
There was once a good trench, the walls are very high and the battlements are tastefully decorated. The Kilidar's house soars above the ramparts, and the whole has an antique and picturesque appearance, particularly from the northern side where the walls are washed by a large expanse of water, in which is a small island studded with trees. There are three guns at Bulara. Maruth is a town of importance as regards its trade in grain, but of little as to its aspect. It is surrounded with mud walls of considerable extent and strengthened by numerous towers. It is the station of a regiment with six guns. Mosgar, not so large a town as Maruth, but its contiguous fort is a lofty structure, built of kiln-burnt bricks. On the western face, the walls have been perforated with cannonballs, which we are told happened in the siege it endured from the first Bahawal Khan. The apertures have never been repaired, being supposed evidences of the obstinacy of the defence and of the strength of the fortress. They, however, show its weakness, for they enable us to detect the slightness of the walls. East of the fort is a pool of water shaded by a grove of trees, amongst which is a huge people, an object of veneration to the Hindus of the dam. At a slight distance to the north is a Mohammedan tomb, handsomely decorated with lacquered blue and white tiles. Gudiana, being a frontier town, is the station of a regiment with its attached guns. It is said to have a good bazaar and some trade. The chief fortress of the state is Durawal, before noted equidistant from Ahmedpur and Bahawalpur, or 18 courses from each. It is represented as strong and possibly some care has been bestowed upon it, as the Khans have always selected it for the deposit of their hordes and for an asylum in case of an invasion. Its chief dependence in such a case would appear to be its situation and the difficulty a besieging army would find in subsisting near it, there being no water to be procured without the walls at a shorter distance than nine courses. It has been seen that the desert between the capital and Bikaner is abundantly stocked with fortresses, which are formerly more needed than at the present. Besides these enumerated, the ghadis or castles at Jamgarh and Mirgarh are built of kin-burnt bricks, but they have no longer any garrisons. Six courses from Chota Ahmedpur is Fazilpur, also a ghadi, with a garrison of 150 men which furnishes a detachment of 15 men to Kanderi, a ruinous castle in the desert, in the direction of Jaisalmer. Kanderi is 27 courses from Fazilpur, at the limit of the Khan's territory. The troops consist of seven regiments of infantry, of 350 men each, forming a total of 2,450. To each regiment are attached six guns, which may suppose some 400 artillery men. There are, besides foot companies of Rohillas and Patans, of 50, 100 and 200 men each, under the respective officers, having each one two or three nishans, or standards, as the case may be. These men possibly amount to 1,000. There are, moreover, horsemen in regular pay, who can scarcely exceed a number from two to 3,000. The grand total of the army may be from six to 7,000 men. They are badly equipped, irregularly paid, and I suspect not very warlike. The regiments have no sort of discipline. The natives affirm the military force to consist of 14,000 men, which I think can only be correct as including all the Jagirdars and others whom it may be possible to assemble in case of emergency.
The annual revenue is estimated at 18 lakhs of rupees, one half of which is paid to the Sikhs in the north. But then the Khan rents from them the city and territory of Dera Ghazi Khan for 3 lakhs of rupees and it is believed that he gains 2 lakhs thereby. The reigning chief of Bahawalpur is of a Jit family called Daud Putra or the sons of David. They formerly lived about Shikarpur while becoming numerous and perhaps refractory they were expelled and crossing the Indus possessed themselves of the country where they established separate and independent chiefships. Many of their leaders built towns to which they gave their respective names. Hence, Bahawalpur, the town of Bahawal, Ahmadpur, the town of Ahmad, Fazilpur, the town of Fazil, Subzul, coat, the coat or fort of Subzal, etc., etc. There is mention in the history of Amir Taimur of a notorious freebooter named Daud in the vicinity of Shikarpur. And this good man may have been the ancestor of the present Daud Putras. I know not how long the various leaders may have subsisted in a state of independence or subject to the sovereignty of Delhi, but the dislocation of the Chagatai Empire permitted Bahawal Khan, the grandfather of the present Khan, to reduce them all and to make them make himself absolute. He grew so powerful as to be the terror of his neighbors and to resist the claims of tribute made on him by the Durrani monarch of Kabul, Temur Shah, who found himself compelled to enforce it with his army. Bahawal Khan died full of years and renown and was succeeded by his son Sadat Khan, favorably known to Europeans by his cordial response of the British embassy to Kabul in 1808. At a subsequent period, he compromised himself with Maharaja Ranjit Singh, whose conquests had extended his authority over Multan, and Sadat Khan, unable to oppose him, was constrained to purchase peace by submission and the payment of an annual tribute. He died soon after and left his enfeebled sway to the present Bahawalpur Khan. The chief I have before observed has a prepossessing appearance and I believe is generally popular. His ministers relieve him in great measure from the toils of government and his time is principally occupied in amusements of which shikar or the chase is the most prominent. He has however other accomplishments and is a very tolerable mechanic. Since my visit to Bahawalpur, the train of events in these quarters had brought about a treaty between the Khan and the government of India by which his relations with the Sikhs are placed on a secure footing, and a British resident or agent was located at his court. In the commencement of the unfortunate expedition against Kabul in 1838, the awkwardness of the political officer employed to procure the cooperation, so far as necessary of the Khan, had nearly involved the chief in embarrassment with the British government, and in despair he was thinking of terminating his existence by a dose of poison. Luckily, Sir Henry Fane proceeded down the Sutlej and Gara in his route to Bombay and visited Bahawalpur. His straightforward manners dispelled the doubts and apprehensions of the bewildered chief and Sir Henry had the gratification to save a good man from the evils which threatened him. In the autumn of 1826, having traversed the Rajput states of Shekhawati and the kingdom of Bikaner, I entered the desert frontiers of the Khan of Bahawalpur, and passing successively the towns and castles of Bulara, Mirgarh, Jamgarh, Marut, and Mosgarh, arrived at the city of Bahawalpur. Although in crossing Rajputana, I had met with no obstacles beyond 
which were presented by the country itself and its sultry climate. They were so considerable that notwithstanding I had been everywhere very civilly received and kindly treated, I was delighted to leave behind the arid, sandy wastes and to find myself in a large populous city surrounded with luxuriantly cultivated fields and the groves of stately palm trees. As Bahawalpur is seated on the skirts of the desert, the transition from a land of sterility and solitude to one of fertility and abundance is very striking to the traveller, approaching it from the east. And to myself was particularly agreeable, from my purpose of enjoying within its presence the indulgence of a little repose, which I felt to be warrantable after the toils of the journey I had surmounted. I found, however, that the arrival of a Firangi or European within the Khan's territory had been notified by the governor of Pulara, and it was wished that I should proceed to Ahmedpur, that the Khan might have an interview with me, as it seemed his curiosity had been so far excited that he had expressed a desire to see me. At Bahawalpur, I was the guest of one Khan Muhammad, a man in high authority, if not the governor of the place and in one or two conversations I held with him, he acquitted himself very fairly, his themes being politics, medicine, the philosopher's stone, and religion, all fashionable topics with great and learned men in the East. I was astonished at some of his questions about Russia and other European powers, but less so at some curious notions he entertained as to the nature of the company sahib, Having previously heard from Salim Singh, an officer of the Bikaner Raja, that the company sahib was a very good old lady, for whom he had a great deal of respect. But the forte of Khan Muhammad was medicine and the large quantity of glass bottles ranged around his apartment and filled with variously coloured liquids evinced if not his proficiency as a physician, some little dexterity as a compounder. He was very anxious to know my business and could hardly believe that I had none or that I had not brought some message to the Khan, to whom he loyally expressed the devotion of a slave. I had frequently before been suspected to be an Elchi or ambassador, and it was in vain I appealed to the negative evidences of my poverty, and my trudging alone and on foot. Europeans were considered incomprehensible beings, and the inconveniences I bore from necessity were imputed to choice, or to ikmat, or perhaps ingenuity. I passed three or four days at Bahawalpur, which gave me the opportunity of inspecting some of the manufactures of silk and tissue for which the city is famed and of making the acquaintance of Nizamuddin, the Qazi, a worthy man who more than once invited me to his residence. I then signified to Khan Muhammad that I was ready to start for Ahmedpur and he commissioned one of his dependents to accompany me and to conduct me to the house of Muhammad Khan, the Bakshi or paymaster of the Khan's forces. The distance between Bahawalpur and Ahmedpur is about 20 courses or 30 miles, and we made two journeys passing the night at Bakshi Khan Ka Masjid, a small village so-called from a comparatively handsome mosque, built by an individual whose name it bears. The heat of the weather was oppressive, but the country was well cultivated and peopled, the villages being usually distinguished by contiguous groups of tamarisk trees which attain quite a surprising size. Water everywhere abounded, in wells of slight depth, and is raised to the surface by the medium of wheels worked by oxen and sometimes by camels. On one occasion we crossed a nala or watercourse, which I have reason to remember as the camel I was riding lost his footing, 
and precipitated me into it an accident more than compensated by the pleasure derived from the immersion. While so powerful were the rays of the sun that my apparel and I was clad in white linen became dry nearly as soon as we were wedded. On reaching Ahmedpur, we proceeded, as had been arranged, to the abode of the Bakshi, who, while he courteously welcomed me, was setting aside his elevated position by no means so refined a personage as his colleague and friend at Bahawalpur. He informed me that the Khan was then at Darawal, a fortress eighteen courses distant in the desert, where it is understood he keeps his treasures, as in a safe place where he frequently resides. The Bakshi was anxious that I should spend my time pleasantly until the Khan revisited Ahmedpur, which he was expected to do in a few days, and assigned me to the care of Rahmat Khan, a Rohilla officer, who from long service in Hindustan was supposed to be an acquaintance with European manners and habits, and therefore quite competent to attend to my wants. Rahmat Khan cheerfully accepted his charge and conducted me to his quarters, which were, indeed, not very good ones. Still, a distinct and tolerably fair house was prepared for my reception. The Bakshi was also careful to send after me a variety of provisions, with bedsteads, utensils, and water vessels, as is the usual observance in the case of public guests, amongst whom I learned that I was so enumerated. Rehmat Khan was a native of Rampur in northern India, and I gleaned from his history that he had been a soldier of fortune, having commanded in his palmy days two battalions in the camp of the Maratha Sardar, Hira Singh. Afterwards, he had served under the celebrated Amir Khan, and still later under the banners of the Bhav Sahib, the chief of Jawad, when at the capture of the fortress by the British, he had become for a moment a prisoner of war. When set at liberty, he abandoned India and gained Bahawalpur, where the command of 100 men was conferred upon him, with the custody of the Ghari of Fazalpur on the frontier of Sindh. His pay was fixed at 2 rupees per diem, and I was told he realized about 5 rupees by false musters, and practices which, if not permitted, were at least tolerated. Unable, however, to forget or to forego the gaieties to which he had been accustomed in the Maratha camps, he was necessarily involved in debt, to the large amount of 6,000 rupees. And during my stay with him, we had some notches, spectacles of which, like most natives of India, he was excessively fond and concluded I must be equally so. His men were generally of the same town or province as himself. Many of them were attached to him when in better circumstances and all of them accordingly to their own assertions had been in more honourable and lucrative employ than that of the Khan of Bahawalpur. It was not long before the Khan came to Bahawalpur as he remained only a day or two and had much business to transact. The Bakshi, bewildered by his accounts and the clamours of the soldiery for pay, forgot to inform him of my presence. And, ignorant thereof, the Khan returned to his strong desert fastness, glad to shelter himself in its solitude from the importunities of his dependents and the weighty cares of government. The Bakshi, I found, had been born a slave of the reigning family and had been promoted to his present office by the favour of the present Khan. He is not emancipated and his pay as registered is but eight annas or half a rupee a day. Still having the management of large funds, he is unable to enrich himself and live quite luxuriously. I attended at two or three of his levies and was surprised at the freedom with which the meanest soldier addressed him. No delicacy was observed in the selection of language, and I wondered what he called me to witness as it were the torrents of abuse lavished upon him, 
When he dismissed his contentious clients, he conversed with me and felt the conviction I was a sardar of no small consequence from the circumstances of having made use of my hand in addressing him. He appeared to have little ability and although considered the head of the forces, he never commands them on service, the post of honor being reserved for the wazir Yaqub Muhammad Khan. I ex- expressed so strong displeasure at his forgetfulness that we became worse friends than we had been before, and I told him I should now continue my journey without seeing the Khan. Fearful to incur blame in that case, he replied that I should not proceed, which made me ask him, who he was who dared me from travelling on one of God's high roads. To which question he had no answer to make, but evasively suggested that I should engage in the Khan's military service. As he said, one Bada Sahib, some European who had previously visited Bahawalpur, had done. To this I gave a peremptory refusal. I had understood from my Ahmedpur acquaintance that the climate was a very hostile one for strangers, and I found the Bada Sahib, the European mentioned by the Bakshi, had died from its painful effects. Indeed, the heat was seriously troublesome, and I was particularly anxious to move forward, and I should have done it in spite of the Bakshi's prohibition, had I not been seized by an intermittent fever, which entirely prostrated me. This misfortune increased my anger with the Bakshi, whom I reviled as being the cause of it, and he, apprehensive lest determination should be fatal, sent the Khan's hakims of physicians whose insignificant remedies I was obliged to reject. And being ignorant myself of the correct mode of treatment, my case became nearly hopeless. There seemed little chance of the Khan's speedy reappearance at Ahmedpur, and as little that I should recover if I remained there, I therefore decided upon trying a change of air and locality, and from my inquiries selected Allahabad, a town 20 courses from Ahmedpur, on the road to Sindh. I accordingly left my effects in the charge of Rahmat Khan, and taking nothing but my sword, started before sunrise on the road pointed out to me. From the commencement of the fever, the glare of the sun had become peculiarly irksome to me, and I found it impossible to travel after sunrise, which I was compelled, wherever I might be, to seek the nearest shade and throw myself on the ground beneath it. The country through which I was passing was covered with tamarisk jungle, among which the villages and cultivated lands were sprinkled. The former was seldom visible from the road, but I was directed to them by the creaking of the wheels at the wells. At all of them, there was what is called a machi, a person, generally a female, who provides lodging and prepares food for the stranger and traveller. I made so little progress that it was four or five days before I reached Varni, a large village on the roadside, and I was so exhausted that I remained at the Machi's house two or three days and then proceeded somewhat recruited towards Allahabad. The approach to this town was more pleasing than I had anticipated for the jungle seizing I came upon a rivulet of running water, beyond which stretched a large expanse of meadow, and in the distance I beheld the cupola of the principal mosque of the place, embosomed in groves of date trees. As I neared the town, I came upon a veranda, carried around a huge people tree, which I found was one of the Khan's hunting pavilions, and as the shade it afforded was very complete, I reposed the greater part of the day under it. I afterwards saw many other such pavilions in various parts of the country, and if simple in construction, they were not very inelegant while admirably adapted for the purpose for which they were formed. 
Towards evening, I moved towards the town, and at its entrance was accosted by a well-dressed person, who at once invited me to his house. I accompanied him and soon found myself comfortably located. My new friend was most attentive, nor did his goodness merely extend to my entertainment. He proposed also to remove my disorder. He convened the physicians of the place, but their prescriptions were quite as inefficacious as those of their brethren at Ahmedpur, and they laboured in vain to persuade me that conserve of roses and sugar candy could cure inveterate fevers. I had every reason to be grateful for my reception here, but my disease seemed in no wise likely to yield. When in despair, I became my own doctor, and to the dismay of my well-meaning friends, sent for the Arjum or Barber, who bled me both on the hands and the arms, and I likewise drank plentifully of effusions of senna, and whether the remedies were judicious or from other causes, I had the great satisfaction to find myself without fever, although in a deplorable state of weakness. My hospitable entertainer was delighted and astonished at my recovery from remedies he considered desperate ones. He spared neither pains nor expense in the fare with which he provided me, under the idea of establishing my strength. I had found that the cuisine of Khan Muhammad at Bahawalpur was a very good one, and that of my Allahabad friend was not less entitled to praise. This commendable person to whom I owe so much obligation was Salam Khan Daud Putra, a man of affluent circumstances and a principal authority in his town. I need not testify to his humanity, but may add that he was extremely mild and modest in manners. I learned from his attendants that he was a reputed kimiagar or alchemist, but more instructed men than he have their foibles, and with me he never discoursed on the subject. Finding myself better, I proposed to return to Ahmedpur when Salam Khan begged me to stay yet another two or three days, when he would go there himself and we should go together. In due time, a horse being saddled for my use, we started. My friend made a respectable appearance and carried on his back a handsome quiver of arrows, the emblem of rank and dignity, and we were followed by some of his mounted attendants. Salam Khan, being acquainted with the country, passed by a much nearer route than the high road by which I had journeyed, and skirting the edge of the desert, we were not long in reaching Varni, where we passed the night, and in the morning proceeded to Ahmedpur. There we separated, Salam Khan repairing to his friends, and I to my former quarters at Rahmat Khan's. I found that my Rahullah acquaintance was favorably known to Salam Khan for his courteous and sardar-like demeanor, and I became cognizant that he was generally respected throughout the country for the same reason. Rahmat Khan received me most cordially, and I had abundant congratulations on my recovery. I learned that the Khan had not during my absence revisited Ahmedpur, but that he was daily expected. In fact, he very soon came and I notified to Rahmat Khan that, that I intended to pay my respects to him. And he in turn informed the Bakshi who now said, I should not see the Khan as I would not engage in his service. To which, when stated to me, I said, I would see the Khan. On going, however, to the Khan's residence for the purpose of an interview, I found that the people at the entrance had been instructed by the Bakshi to refuse me admittance. I discovered it was useless to argue with them and was about to return when Muthi Ram, 
the Khan's Hindu Diwan or Minister of Finance came out. He did not go so far as to act in opposition to the Bakshi and procure me an interview with the Khan, but contrary to my wishes and expostulations, alighted from his horse and insisted I should ride the animal home. The truth was I was still very feeble, which he observed and his act at least showed that he had a heart and was a humane man. I had now determined to continue my journey westward and was careless about seeing the Khan and I really had no business with him, thinking only of giving my friend the Bakshi a good lecture before I left. It happened, however, that near the town was a fine meadow, where now that I felt able, I strolled in the evening, and here by chance the Khan, who never sleeps in Ahmedpur, passed me, carried in a palanquin and escorted by a numerous cavalcade. His eye caught me and he ordered his conveyance to be halted when he asked who I was, how long I had been in Ahmedpur and why he had not been informed of it and at the same time making a motion with his hand for me to approach closer. I had not pressed through the crowd when the Khan resumed progress, but one of his attendants to whom he had whispered something apprised me that his lord would be glad to see me in the morning at the Darbar. I had scarcely returned to Rahmat Khan and told him that I had met the Khan when a messenger came from the Bakshi, praying that I would call upon him. I accordingly went and Rahmat Khan accompanied me. We found the great man at prayers. When concluded, he joined us and we had a long conversation during which I upbraided him for his conduct and detaining me, and then for preventing my interview with the Khan. He entreated me to engage in the service, telling me that the Khan would make me over his seven regiments of infantry with their guns and sanction the Levi or as many more. I repeated what I had before told him. I would have nothing to do with them. He urged that the Bara Sahib had before engaged in the service, and I said what suited the convenience of the Bara Sahib might not suit mine. He then recommended me to proceed and perhaps join the Sayyid Ahmad Shah. I asked him who was this Sayyid Ahmad Shah and what I had to do with him. I was at this time ignorant as to the Sayyid and the cause in which he was combating and knew little more than that he was a deadly enemy of the Sikhs. The Bakshi was then desirous to learn where I intended to go and whether to Dost Muhammad Khan of Kabul. I answered, I should go where and to whom I pleased. He was probably little satisfied with the result of his interview, but he was so subdued that when I spoke sharply with him, he actually trembled, which when we parted afforded a subject of much merriment to Rahmat Khan. On the morrow, I walked to the Killa, or the residence of the Khan, and was immediately ushered in at the gate. We passed a well-stocked aviary before being introduced to the Khan's presence. He was seated, cross-legged, on a carpet reclining on a large pillow, with his left arm resting on a black shield. He was plainly dressed in white linen, but had magnificent armlets of turquoises set in gold. Before him was lying a double-barreled fowling piece, and on each side of him European sabres. His countenance was remarkably handsome and bore every indication of goodness, although I recollected as I beheld it that his accession to the authority had been marked by the slaughter of some of his father's ministers, a usual consequence of the transfer of power in Oriental states, yet barely excusable on that account. He was not above 23 or 24 years of age, he politely welcomed me and directed his arms to be shown to me, that I might ascertain their fabric, while he explained how he had procured them. 
He made few other inquiries, either because he knew from the bakshi who was dutifully standing behind him that I was obstinate in refusing to enter his service, or was because, because aware that I had been recently unwell. He was deterred by good feeling from bearing me. He asked the bakshi how I was to my diet and was told that I ate everything, meat, fish, fowls, eggs, and, as was added, all at the same time, which I doubt not was thought very singular, although I did no more than they do constantly themselves. I soon received permission to depart, the good Muthi Ram mentioning that I was feeble, and I had gone a few paces when I was called back to be told the Khan had ordered a sum of money to be carried home with me for my money or my entertainment, and I saw the Khan himself take three double handfuls of rupees from two heaps which were piled up before him. I was glad to get away and paid no attention to the present. Therefore, when I regained my quarters, I received about 60 rupees, which must have been a small portion only of the sum given. When again in my quarters, I found myself attended by numbers of officers and men of the battalions, who it seems had heard of the Khan's wish to place them under my command, they had, and they urged me to accept the charge, for then they said the Bakshi would be unable to detain their pay and they should receive it quite regularly. Now I expressed my doubts whether I should be likely to reform the incorrigible Bakshi, and assured them apparently to their regret that I did not intend to undertake the task. I received also another application from the Bakshi who perhaps thought the kind reception and the liberality of the Khan might have softened my resolve. But hearing that I was firm, he signified I was at liberty to remain as long as I pleased at Ahmedpur or to go when and where I thought fit. Although I had suffered much from fever and its consequences, during my stay at Ahmedpur and its neighbourhood, I had every reason to be gratified with the civility of all classes of the people, and I found them always disposed to be communicative on points within their knowledge.' 